Kia ora. Welcome to this podcast series, Making Money a Force for Good. I'm Barry Coates. I'm founder of Mindful Money. In this series, we're talking to the pioneers who are using investment to make a better future. I hope you enjoy this seminar. Kia ora, everyone. Uh, my name's Barry Coates. Um, Namihi nui kia koutou, e na rauranga tiorama, no mai hari mai whakatou mai ki tene hui mariko. Uh, ka veri koutaho, ko te karahi o te putea whai whakaro. Nō reira tena koutou, tena koutou, tena tato katoa. Um, good evening all, I'm, I'm Barry Coates, founder and CEO of Mindful Money, a warm welcome to you all. Uh, Mindful Money has a mission to empower investors to invest in line with their values. As well as transparency and tools on our website, we undertake these kind of seminars to highlight how investment can make a difference on issues that matter to the public. Uh, so uh, this is the ninth seminar on our series, uh, and you're very welcome to go to our website to see recordings of some previous great episodes on climate change, net zero, social housing, and impact investing. But tonight we're talking about modern slavery. It's a focus on the violation of labor rights. When we do annual surveys of the public to ask what issues are of most concern, it turns out that the rights of workers and supply chains is always one of the top issues. I'm pleased to welcome our panel. Uh, one of our panelists, Kerry Hannafin, was unable to join us because of the impact of Omicron on Countdown's workforce. Uh, so uh, we're left with two fantastic panelists. Um, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Anne-Marie O'Connor is, uh, I'll introduce first, Anne-Marie is Head of Responsible Investment for the New Zealand Superannuation Fund. Her main role is development and oversight of their Responsible Investment Framework which including, includes integrating environmental, social, and governance considerations across their investments, often called ESG issues. Anne-Marie uh, has been involved in modern slavery uh, at the local and global level. Uh, for example, she was a commissioner on the Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking, the so-called Liechtenstein Initiative. So, Anne-Marie, a very warm welcome to you. Please feel free thank, to join. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Barry, and thank you very much for having me. Um, Anne-Marie, let's, uh, let's kick off. I thought what might be really good was to use your global experience mm -hmm. to talk about what's been happening in terms of particularly, you know, the theme of these seminars is finance, so we're going to unabashedly talk about a finance response. So the, talk yeah. about the finance response to, to modern slavery and studying, studying globally. Yeah. Well, I mean, human rights has been a focus of responsible investors for a very long time. But as we were just talking about the um, Thai fishing industry and the shocking findings there, it really reignited the um, conversation globally that slavery still existed. Um, it was a new term, really, for the investment um, industry, the term modern slavery. And um, that work really uh, ignited many of the uh, um, investors that produce reports such as HSBC, to really focus in on this. And that spread awareness amongst the investment sector. And in particular, the UNPRI got very um, involved um, on, on the issue. And around 2018, um, along with the sort of global community of practice that was focusing on modern slavery, including even and regionally the wonderful Walk Free Foundation, for example, and the Bali process was going on. So uh, it was, um, we were looking at, well, what is the finance sector's role? How can the finance sector be le leveraged in the fight against modern slavery and human trafficking? So the commission brought together the banking sector, um, the investment sector, and even the insurance sector. And the skills in the room 
were quite different um, because the people in the room we don't really usually deal with were anti-money laundering experts, so people also fighting uh, money flows against terrorism. And they turned their minds to what banks could do in terms of identifying red flags and also what banks could do um, in um, helping survivors who often don't have bank accounts after they're being abused um, in this way. From the investment side, we really deepened our knowledge and then um, our um, there, there are really two main areas that uh, investors can have action on. One is on the around the diligence of new and existing invest in, investments, so diligence as you go into those investments. And the other is engagement when you find problems and engagement to help promote um, global standards. So it's those really, are the two yeah. key ways, yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that... that uh, definition of modern slavery covering issues of labor rights abuses and trafficking and a range of other violations of human mm. rights really help focus attention of these global institutions in a way that they hadn't previously done what what was it about 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 that that time that that kind of really kicked up the the attention was there any particular um, scandal you you referred to kind of tie fishing slavery but 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 uh, was there something else happening at the time? Well, I think that um, the, the that labor exploitation and issues around labor exploitation had obviously been around for a while and had been a focus of engagement. Other supply chain issues um, in the cocoa supply chain and the tobacco supply yeah. chain and child labour had also been a focus. Uh, but I think what happened was uh, the whole world woke up to the fact that we were not winning that we were not winning the battle, and in fact, that this was an illegal growth industry. And yeah. I always really? said, from yeah, from a finance perspective, you're actually undermining good companies through yeah. this abuse in the labour and in the supply chains. Really interesting too, because it, it came about also as a result of some of the debates around globalisation and the, the the kind of downsides of globalization the kind of the issues that that were often not uh, not immediately addressed so so that was happening at the at the international level and can you then describe kind of what what it looks like at the new zealand level in terms of of how new zealand finance sector and investors are, are responding well Yes, I, I think it's a very interesting time because um, we've got a lot more tools now to engage with companies. We've got a lot more tools to uh, apply to our real assets. So when you're going into the infrastructure place, you, space, you might not be so much investing in a company, but you might be investing in a piece of infrastructure with a lot of different parties. Um, and so now that, that, that there's a lot more tools, um, we know how we know better how to engage. We know better how to put things into our legal documents, into our requirements with managers. Um, and we also know that this has now shot up the board agenda. And New Zealand companies are are very sensitive to their brand. So our reputation as clean and green and, uh, you know, can be readily tarnished. I think that in New Zealand people only have become aware recently about the abuse that goes on with um, in the mig with migrants, for example, um, and anywhere that people are vulnerable. So um, it's easier to engage once people really can't deny there's a problem. Yeah, cool. And we'll come back uh, to some of those New Zealand uh, issues in, in discussion. At this stage, let me, um, let me bring in Ed Miller. Um, a very warm welcome to you, Ed. It's a researcher at First Union, uh, which is a union of over 29,000 members in sectors including retail, 
finance, transport, logistics, manufacturing, and ambulances. Uh, so first, union fights for social justice, decent work, safe workplaces, and decent wages. So Ed uh, has previously been an education officer and campaigner for the Asia-Pacific region of the Global Building and Woodworkers Union uh, and at First Union prior to that as well. So, um, Ed, uh, warm welcome. And um, uh, please uh, uh, talk to us about, about some of your experiences, uh, particularly maybe drawn from, from your work in Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, so thank you very much for that lovely introduction. I got involved in sort of the modern slavery work while I was working in Kuala Lumpur, <clears throat> while I was working uh, in the wooden forestry sector mainly, also in the construction sector. Um, but the problem that we found was that I guess there was a limited appetite amongst Malaysian consumers to really target these issues at the time. Um, but when I was contacted by some colleagues that were working in the rubber glove space, um, that was an industry that had broad international connections. There were a lot of consumers and a lot of investors that were very concerned about what was happening in that industry. And it was an area where we were able to start working and, and were able to make some inroads to address the same kind of issues that we were seeing in other industries, uh, but with an international audience in a way that we didn't have that kind of outreach. So the kind of issues that we were seeing and to to look at the rubber glove industry, I mean, Malaysia, prior to the pandemic anyway, um, accounted for two out of three gloves produced globally. So the vast majority of rubber gloves that were produced in the world were produced in Malaysia. That's changed a little bit because of there's been more domestic production, particularly in China. Um, but most of that industry was Nepali and Bangladeshi workers, some Myanmar workers as well, but most of them were migrant workers. Uh, around about 20,000 people, or no, many more than that, but in the largest company, Top Glove, which made one in four gloves that were produced globally, had a workforce of about 20,000 people. Almost all of them were, were migrants from largely Nepal and Bangladesh, but some other countries around South and Southeast Asia as well. They were would come into Malaysia through a series of agents, through quite complex sort of subcontracted labor supply chains, um, they would be given different contracts before they left the country to when they reached the country. They would have their passports taken away from them uh, regularly. Um, and there was a combination of factors like that, including extremely long working hours um, and high recruitment debt before they left their country of origin, which together, those are kind of the indicators of what we call modern slavery or forced labor nowadays, those factors together. So it's quite a broad set of definitions that can be applied to modern slavery. There's a, a series of indicators, but generally when, when you're working very long hours, you have high, heavy recruitment debt to pay and you don't have access to your passport, then your threshold is met right there. Um, yeah. We were able, I, when we first reported these issues, they came out in a number of different publications like The Guardian, ABC, a few American publications. Uh, I published the findings in the spin-off in, in New Zealand and I wrote to the Minister of, of Health at the time, but we didn't get a huge response. I was able to pinpoint quite clearly the gloves that Pharmac was purchasing um, that were going into our <laughs> into our public health system that our nurses and, and doctors were using within the New Zealand health system. But there wasn't an appetite to do that much about it at the time until fast forward around about 18 months later and the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, the, the amount of gloves that the country were buying had magnified significantly. And all of a sudden, that was a story. And what a, what a great way to concentrate people's minds when, when the gloves were were intimately involved in, in response to, to the COVID pandemic. That must have really helped kind of elevate the issue and, and bring it up to, to the attention of decision makers. You're absolutely right. And, and we saw a strong response from both the public sector and the private sector as well. Um, the New Zealand government responded quite strongly. Um, they did a thorough analysis of all the gloves that they were buying and were able to pinpoint the, the gloves that were, were from uh, the factories that had been the subject of modern slavery from Top Glove, the company, um, which had gone through a few intermediaries. So it was a bit more complex than that. Um, but they had 
they had identified the problems and, and they had got rid of them within their supply chain. So that was a really good response. And then we started to see the, the private sector kicking into action as well. So the company that had been selling to Pharmac, which was called Eboss, said, OK, we're going to stop buying uh, these gloves that had come from, from Top Glove. And then Foodstuffs, which was the largest kind of independent buyer, also did the same right. thing. They decided to stop buying Top Glove products as well. So we, did you did you have an issue of contested evidence of, of the companies, the supply chain initially denying there was a problem, having to go through the process of documenting, showing that, getting verification? Can you describe uh, well, a little bit about how, how that process? I think the legislative game changer has been the power of the United States government calling in the uh, what they call the Customs and Border Protection Agency and their ability to ban products from entry. So they, this is the difference between how our uh, incoming modern slavery regime is going to work versus how the US works, where they have the ability to, they can look through the evidence and they can then do a hard ban on products coming in where there's sufficient evidence of modern slavery. And we're not contemplating a tool like that. But when the US CBP jumps, it, the rest of the world tends to follow nowadays. So we've seen that happen in the case of now six different rubber glove factories, uh, different rubber glove companies. Um, and all of each time that's happened, there's been a process of dialogue that's begun between the companies, the governments, the investors, um, and the, the campaigners together to try and get forward movement and address these issues so that they can get um, get the ban off their shoulders. Because, for example, in the case of Top Glove, their biggest market was the US, and that tends to be the case for, for most exporters. Yeah. Interestingly, that's also following up in the palm oil space as well, where the US Customs and Border Protection Agency has slapped those same withhold release orders, import bans on a number of com companies. Let's bring in Anne-Marie, because often when these issues get raised to investors the investors say well you know we're not sure about this and and in this case with the u.s government saying yes there's a problem here and we're taking action that gives it a validity that would otherwise not always be the case if it was just an ngo for example who was yeah. who was alleging these or a trade union in the case of, mm -hmm. of its work is yeah. that has that been a bit of a game changer in terms of the modern slavery work from the investment perspective? I think it has from two um, perspectives. The bright line test um, means that you don't get bogged down in too many arguments. Um, the, the company may well still deny. Um, and, and what was helpful, I think, with Top Glove was that there had been quite a lot of action already with the um, with the company. So the company that engages with companies on our behalf, BMO, had been addressing this issue with the company for just a couple of years. But the second thing that that did uh, was that it made it a complete financial issue, not just a social issue. You can now lose your market in the US because of this. Um, and I think the US is focused on the modern slavery, so the extreme end. So, you know, it's not gray, it's not too, it's not too gray. Um, you have to sort of, and then you know the regulators will step in, but what it also uncovers is that it wasn't just top glove, it's, it, there's an industry wide problem. And I doubt it's, and, and it's not just gloves. So um, what that does is it educates the market that if this is happening in Malaysia, then what about all the other all the other ex countries that um, big companies on our portfolio have exposure to? So I, I think it's been a game changer in that respect. Yeah, it's great to have examples like this where where then you can compare it and say, well, you know, what are the labor standards and, and other producers? And, and Ed, from your perspective in, in Asia Pacific, was this then a kind of a leverage point to get deeper change across, across the sector as a whole? Yeah. Um, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, we were, we were looking at other sectors previously where there were similar issues that, that uh, took place and we weren't getting the same kind of movement because we didn't have the international attention 
that we that we had through the rubber glove case. But rubber glove has now put it in, as I said, palm oil. Palm oil. Now we're looking at other kinds of other parts of the manufacturing industry. Uh, there's discussions around semiconductors. There's discussions around parts of the supply chain for different manufacturing products, like we were talking before, Dyson vacuum cleaners. Uh, they're concerned. Well, they've been found quite similar allegations uh, with their supply chain manufacturer, which is a company called ATA. Um, and there's a whole bunch of action happening around there. So yeah, it's it's been a real driver of change in Malaysia. And now Malaysia is, is the government is saying, well, we need to get on the discussion around forced labor. We need to start ratifying some of the ILO conventions around forced labor. So that change is starting to happen as a result of that international pressure. Um, and, you know, workers' lives are improving as a result of that. And I just wanted to share one little facet in terms of that top glove story where we, we were able to get significant change in terms of workers' lives. One of the things that Top Glove had to do as a result of, to get rid of the US import ban, is they had to repay the recruitment debt to all the workers who'd paid. It tends to be that if you're in Nepal, you pay about 1,500 US dollars. If you're a Bangladeshi worker, you pay between three and 5,000 US dollars, which is you know between one and two years work for people at a normal stage of, of work. So people lose years of their life just to get into the country. And in these cases, we were able to get that money repaid. And we were also able, with the help of Union Aid here in Aotearoa, to get a little project together to try and guarantee that that money went to the people that it was supposed to go to. And we were tracking down people in Nepal to ensure that they got the money that they were supposed to be getting. Oh, what a great story. The um... Because in these in these cases, the, the concern is that often where labor rights abuses are found, the workers are just kicked out uh, and they're often left worse off than previously. And so you, you get into a situation that that uh, actually the, the people who are, are, have been victims of, of abuse turn out to be the ones who suffer from the problem. Other mechanisms that that uh in place in, through trade unions through ngos in order to try and ensure that doesn't happen in remediation work i would say we're developing those kind of mechanisms but it's okay. it's such a new space that it's uh, you know it's very hard and often you're dealing with problems that go back many many years and often the remedies have an expiry date on them as well so in the case of top glove they had introduced uh, a, recruit a zero recruitment fees policy in 2019, from beginning from the 1st of January 2019. So we were saying what happens to a worker who's gone back on the 31st of December 2018. They didn't get the same access to justice. We fought those claims, and in many cases we won them. But, um, you know, the, this whole discourse is kind of in its infancy, so there's definitely more work to be done. It's interesting you're saying that, that this is not a new issue. I actually worked on something called the Ethical Trading Initiative, which was a tripartite body between NGOs, unions and, and companies on these kind of issues in the mid-1990s. So, so uh, um, it's, it's great to see now that this kind of new energy and, in a way, new validity from, from the US government's role in this but also, kind of back to you, Anne-Marie, mm -hmm. the power of investors now bringing yeah. their voice to bear is actually forcing action back on the companies not to sweep these issues under the carpet. Yes, I, I mean, um, you know, the UNPRI now has 4,000 signatories that, are, can, that um, support the investment case that managing... Um, ESG or environmental and so, social issues well are good for the long-term uh, value of the company. And these sorts of instances really um, demonstrate that. The investors have a role to play with engaging with the board. And the other thing that happened with the top glove um, bright line test was that um, ISS um, is an agency that helps with almost all of the voting of directors and um, recommendations of investors around the world. And so they brought out a recommendation to vote against the re-election of the directors of Top Glove, which would be quite um, embarrassing, I think, for 
for um, boards in Asia to have that. But that that action would have been repeated, um, would have been done at scale just because of that one um, recommendation. So It's really interesting, isn't it? So, so in our system, you've got the company's shares being owned primarily by big investment companies or other institutional right. investors mm -hmm. and retail investors, kind of you and I who have our KiwiSaver funds, we put our money into these funds who then are meant to represent us as owners of the company. And, and I think it's good when you describe the fact that increasingly the investment funds are voting on their shares and voting in ways that are supporting social and environmental issues. That's, mm. a, that's, a, that's kind of a big step towards actually making this whole system work better. Right. Well, we all have a role to play. Um, not, no one can do it by themselves. And then one investor um, owning very few shares can lead the way. Um, but really, when it, when, when it comes to that sort of leverage, if you get the right players, like the proxy voting agencies, like the credit rating agencies, like those that supply information um, to the mm. investment world then that's very powerful and so that's why the disclosure under the uk modern slavery act and getting that information out there is important and then the other thing that's important is knowledge so now we know better about recruitment fees and recruitment agencies and so do companies so companies can put those in their supplier agreements of course that's not a that, that's not a guarantee in any way, but at least legally they've, we've, we've woken up. Yeah. On that, Anne-Marie, um, the Superfund obviously slightly on a different topic, but played a crucial role in, in pressure on Facebook following the Christchurch shootings and, and tackling social media companies through international collaboration. So yes. you're describing them with Top Glove a kind of collaboration on labour rights. Do, yes. do you see the Superfund playing more of a role in doing this? Is that something that you see um, being an important yeah. role for, for wealth funds like, like Superannuation Fund to play? Well, definitely. I mean, that, <laughs> that um, collaboration which we led, where when you're a lead, it takes a lot of resource. But we felt it was really important, given the Christchurch terror attacks, for us to take that lead. However, we're involved in certain collaborations, like at least a dozen collaborations of this type around the world. Um, so Myanmar and um, um, the Uyghurs, there's some really great human rights collaborations um, some collaborations um, that interact with civil society and work together to really pull investor dollars, I suppose, um, and then get in the door of the companies. And some of them, uh, if, if they're very large companies, what, what you tend to get is you get the experts who may be smaller funds. So Candrium, for example, is leading a collaboration on human rights and technology um, and misuse. Um, and it's got the skills, but it will bring in a BlackRock, for example, or a CalPERS, you know, with trillions or, or a Norwegian uh, government pension fund with trillions under management. So that's how it's working at the moment. Um, of course, there is a debate on when you disengage, um, but, um, I think the voices are being taken more seriously by companies and, um, and, and investors are getting more comfortable working, or not sometimes, but comfortable working with um, other civil society groups. Yeah. And, and turning to you on that, Ed, you know, one of the issues is that these investors might have billions of dollars, but trade unions don't. And uh, there are obviously huge capacity issues because you're the ones who have to deal with the issues 
on the ground in really difficult circumstances, often very dangerous circumstances. So, so is there a need for greater capacity building of civil society, of trade unions in order for actually the reality of what's happening on the ground to be able to be verified and uh, exposed? I think yes, if if the right kind of collaboration can be reached. Um, yes, trade unions never have enough funds to be able to to do the work that we need to do, but that doesn't stop us from doing it. But you know, in in the case of Top Glove, and there's probably countless other examples in not just Malaysia but right around the Asia Pacific rim, where you have um, industries that trade unions need to be organising in, but do not have the resources to do it just because they just you know, there's, there's a, a list of priorities and you have to do what's necessary to keep your union alive rather than going into the next fight and that kind of thing. Um, I'm sure there's a space for the right kind of principled um, kind of coordination between uh, financial organisations, investors, <clears throat> and, you know, those with, with the right kind of ethos and that have worked together properly to work with trade unions to make sure that you know, ILO call rights have, are all satisfied and that the, the worst kind of excesses, the kind of modern slavery stuff is is put to an end really early because, you know, we, we understand that there's a real concern amongst uh, consumers around this, which leads back into a con concern from investors. Um, but yeah, the, I think there's a, it, it's going to be a long road to get to that kind of collaboration because there, there needs to be the, the trust built up between parties that they have a shared kind of co-papa about how they want to push these things forward. But, you know, like there's, there's a, a good space being carved out through this discussion. And I think it's a, it's a, a way we can push forward in a lot of areas. There's, um, Anne-Marie mentioned there's struggles around uh, Uyghur justice and that kind of thing. And there's huge concerns around modern slavery and a lot of industries, for example, in Aotearoa, we're buying a lot of electric buses. And one of the main companies that we buy from, CRRC, has had a lot of allegations of modern slavery leveled against them. I haven't been able to look into them in a huge amount of detail, but they're discussions we need to start having because that's part of the, the future direction that the country's taking regardless. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, there's a very good engagement example on that cobalt issue with um, BMO, who does a lot of our engagement for us. Um, with General Motors, and um, as a result of people working together, not just investors, they've moved from have from a sort of third party supplier to being a first party supplier. So basically, bringing that due diligence in house um, to try and address that cobalt um, supply chain, and there probably are moves to try and um, substitute cobalt for other supplies but you know it, isn't it a sh you know you'd rather actually be able to use the cobalt that's been produced ethically yeah yeah, yeah. so um some countries in response to this have introduced legislation like the uk and australia and um there was a high profile recent parliamentary meeting on on new zealand legislation and uh i know world vision and trade aid have been doing great work to to push this ahead as well as many from the investment community and, and trade unions so um what difference would would new zealand legislation make and and other particular um things you you want to see uh in that legislation that would make sure it makes a difference who's that too <laughs> see you both well, for us, it would give more disclosure. Um, I think that a lot of New Zealand companies are probably already caught by the Australian and the UK Modern Slavery Acts because they will be in the supply chain. Um, so certainly we've seen the UK Modern Slavery Act um, generate, through disclosure, more action. Um, however, I am always asking for disclosure on health and safety, climate change, labor standards, diversity, gender, and now modern slavery. Um, modern slavery may have a case to stand on its own because you know it's so abhorrent <laughs> to everybody. Um, but 
I am getting concerned about the number of different silos around reporting that companies have to meet all these different laws. And we've always said to um, companies, and this is in the corporate governance code, if you're listed, um, that you should be identifying your most material social and environmental issues, working out how to monitor and track and have those reported to you. And you should be reporting to your shareholders and stakeholders and how you're addressing those. So that would argue rather than legislation uh, focusing on disclosure just on modern slavery, we actually need a broader disclosure regime as a code or even legislation that I think that industries disclosure. Yeah. yeah. I think there should be a good um, conversation about what companies would prefer, really. I mean, you know, but what's in their best interest as well as everyone else um, in terms of getting this information out there. And the information should be helping them. Yeah. The information but, helps the company do the right, do a good job. You're right. There's a, there's a lot of different threads going on mm. around this with European regulation that in New Zealand, the external uh, uh, reporting standards now are reporting, coming up with climate disclosure, but also have a mandate to do broader uh, reporting on social and environmental issues. So, so uh, we've yet to see what that looks like, but you're right, it has to, to be consistent with modern slavery. Ed, what, what, is, what do you think of with regard to the, the legislation? Is, it, uh, is this a priority for you? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it makes a lot of sense for us to look over at Australia because they've just finished sort of the first round of reporting on their legislation and all the reports are in. Uh, there's around about, I think it's 73 New Zealand companies that have been captured by that. So it's a good starting point to go through and, and see how effective that's been. Um, and whether, whether it's going to drive change within those companies. We have some concerns about the way the proposal is kind of structured at the moment in terms of the due diligence obligations, whether the way of limiting according to company size, we're concerned that that will just encourage sort of outsourcing and subcontracting and that kind of thing, so that smaller players within the supply chain are tasked with doing all the real nasty, dirty stuff, and, and you can keep the larger companies as clean as possible. And I know that there's some legislative fixes around that, but it's a discussion that still needs to be have, uh, had. rather. We think that the due diligence discussion is, is the first step along the road. We'd like to see um, the New Zealand government developed the same kind of tools that the US government has been able to develop in terms of having the ability to ban um, products where we know or where we have credible evidence that um, they're produced under conditions of modern slavery. And over time, we'd, we'd like to expand that as well. You know, child labour should be in the list. But if there's severe cases of union busting or having union officials that have been arrested, severe violations of the right to freedom of association, ultimately, we would put that in, the, in a similar kind of category that we should be looking at. Yeah, it, it does sort of bring to mind calls also for that to be extended to illegal harvesting of, of timber, for example, or exactly. uh, timber that's been taken from communities without permission, or, or so the environmental issues as well. And, and in a way, it's surprising that governments haven't been more proactive in saying, you know, as well as some things which are internationally legislated for for trade rules, um, that we haven't insisted on stronger social and environmental standards. So, so uh, that would that would be a, a it's a big agenda, though. Yeah, precisely. Um, and the European Union timber regulation does put um, within the definition of illegal illegal harvesting, modern slavery or labour rights violations are kind of included within that. And I think Myanmar was present, prevented from being able to export to the European Union even before the coup. <laughs> yeah. I think they definitely would be now. Hey, um, let's uh, um, have a look at uh, questions. Um, we've got a, got a question come in, uh, Anne-Marie, uh, for you, which is... Uh, uh, from uh, Jennifer, who asks, how do fund managers identify the investee companies on modern slavery issues? How, how do you know 
that the company you're about to invest in does have an issue or not? That's a very good question. And, you know, it is, it, it's, it's difficult, um, of course, um, but that's all part of this kind of find it, fix it, um, prevent it um, drive amongst the corporate sector. And investors uh, generally invest quite passively. They'll track an index. So most um, investors with – and, and I'd say most investors have responsible investment policies now, but you'll utilise a um, research firm to actually monitor that portfolio and then red flag um, issues of concern, be they environmental or corruption or modern slavery or other or a number of other issues. Now, some of the weaknesses in that is that it often is dependent. You know, we're not inside the company. Um, it's dependent on controversy type of screening or disclosure that the companies make themselves. Um, now, if a company's disclosing bad things, it's usually kind of at least trying to tackle a problem. Um, so that can be quite biased to those companies that are newsworthy or are deliberately targeted by civil society groups um, because you'll get the biggest bang for the buck. But that's why the work that Ed has done in Malaysia is really important because once you lift the lid on one company, those that don't have a brand name out there then become more visible. So it's really important um, that our research agencies are really locked into what's going on in the ground. And they can only do that by being locked into a lot of different types of sources of information. There's another question which is uh, uh, picks up on that and, and talks about how ongoing monitoring is under undertaken. I thought, Ed, it might be useful for you to talk about the various ways that, that monitoring does or doesn't take place uh, uh, from the retailers down through the, the different levels of supply chain um, and, and what you see as, as being the role of monitoring and verification on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the best evidence that we use through the, the process of trying to combat modern slavery comes from workers, comes from, from the victims, essentially. Um, and then that's we try and verify that against what we're being told by the companies and the, the sort of ratings agencies and the, the players that are working within that, doing the various forms of, of verification. Um, but we try and take our cues um, most directly from the workers, which probably is why it's been such a difficult kind of um, process to get to because you have so many barriers engaged in, in that, you know, that the, the language barriers are quite significant to begin with, where you have, in the case of the work that we were doing, you know, Nepali and Bangladeshi workers in Malaysia, um, and then trying to relay that to, to an, an English speaking audience generally. So there were, there's quite a few barriers that exist within that, but then there's also the cultural barriers and the sense of vulnerabilities that migrant workers face in terms of coming forward and knowing that they, they could be subject to all sorts of um, pretty bad treatment. Um, the, the, best, <laughs> the best of which is just being sent home, but there's, there's all kinds of actual physical violence and, and threats thereof that's leveled against migrant workers in the process in terms of barriers to coming forward. So I, I guess I, it's, to me, it, it's a huge amount of bravery that's involved in all the workers that, that we've worked with. Um, and wherever we've had whistleblowers that have faced some kind of backlash that we've tried to make sure that they have arrangements that are made for them so that their, their struggle or the, the work that they've done has not been in vain. Um, for example, that project that I talked about before where um, we were in making sure that workers got their remediation um, funds paid back by Top Glove, the, the worker that did the administration of that was a whistleblower who'd been terminated by Top Glove. Yeah. Hey, um, if we talk to companies, and, and it's a pity that uh, Kerry isn't here to, to talk mm. about this aspect, should point to the fact that companies have codes of conduct and and 
they monitor their suppliers on those codes of conduct and the suppliers monitor their suppliers on those codes of conduct and it goes down to the levels of subcontracting down a, a chain. Then there's kind of on top of that, there's verification auditing and verification built into that. Is your experience as a trade unionist that, that those mechanisms often don't work as they're intended to? Well, um, I think I, I don't want to um, shame that Kerry's not here because there's a couple of issues that I wanted to take up with her. But um, <laughs> I, th I think there sometimes those mechanisms are set up in such a way that they're confined to a very small set of applicable circumstances, and the companies that set them up know that they're confined to a, a small number of circumstances and know full well that the worst excesses and the worst abuse of, of workers uh, easily fall outside of those paths. So, I mean, there's an obligation on us and, and other NGOs and campaigners and that kind of thing to work with companies that are setting up these mechanisms to, to improve them and to test them always. Um, but there's should be an obligation on, on private sector companies to make sure that they're looking at the whole of the problem. And, you know, as, as Anne-Marie was suggesting, you know, identify the, the areas that are known to be problem areas and try and target those with the most, because we know that, you know, the, the violations that take place in, in certain areas are, are relatively minor compared to some that are taking place in other areas. Okay, cool. Um, we're going to wrap this up now, but but if you uh, sort of want to give us a, a, a final comment, uh, both of you, I'd be interested to your advice to the audience to say, so if you're concerned about these issues, interested in taking them forward, how how can you, how can people engage with these issues and uh, what should they be be looking for? And in particular, if if, if one of you can talk about uh, ways that people can get involved in in the movement towards uh, legislation in New Zealand as well. Anne Marie, do you want to kick off? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that um, you know over the last three years, so much more guidance and reference material has come out. I mean, we've just produced internally our own gui guidelines for our investment teams across different sectors and asset classes, but there is a lot of material out there now. Um, and I think you can find material that's very pertinent to New Zealand as well. And there, there is some activity in looking at how do you protect migrants um, and if they report, how do you protect them if they report? And, um, and, and, and remember as well that um, um, overseas banks are beginning to play a role in making sure that survivors still have um, bank accounts, have control over their bank accounts. So there's just a lot of flags that you can learn about. And I think that there's actually a big community out there um, doing work. Um, I've mentioned Walk Free um, Foundation, but there's a lot of people working in New Zealand. The Institute of Directors, if you're a director listening in, MB as well has a working group on this. I'm sure Ed's got some other <laughs> other connections for people. Yeah, I, mean, I think what, what Anne-Marie had said earlier, or maybe it was before the discussion started, is that we all have a role to play. Um, if you're in the investment community, then there's lots that you can do to be looking through your supply chain and asking the right questions of all of those points within the supply chain to make sure that you've done the best that you can do to, to eradicate forced labor within or modern slavery within those supply chains. Um, if you're a, a, a consumer, then there's just as much that you can do. Um, and more and more companies and investors are putting out um, mechanisms which you can engage with they're there for people to use. They're not there to, I mean, some people might call them as window dressing or that kind of thing, but they, these things improve by having having tests been applied to them to, to put cases to them. And when, when companies um, fail those tests, then it's an obligation on them to try and improve their performance and to, to look deeper into their supply chain. A lot of times companies um, don't ask the questions that they know they don't want to hear the answer to. It's important that people ask those questions because it's important that companies confront 
those questions and confront the answers to those questions, even if it's ugly, because we don't we don't we don't improve the situation by ignoring the problem. We only improve it by engaging it. And you'll find that throughout that engagement process, that there's lots of good people in there that want to do the right thing as well and need people to throw up complaints so that they can make the kind of changes that they need to see within their organization to keep them happy and satisfied that the work they're doing is valued. Great. Thank, thank you very much to, to both of you. Uh, from the Mindful Money side, uh, we've just put in the chat the fact that there's a seminar next week uh, which is focusing on uh, the trafficking side of modern slavery, particularly trafficking of women and girls for sex. And that's obviously a, a really problematic area of, of modern slavery. So uh, uh, please join us next week. We also had a, a year ago a, uh, a seminar on, on modern slavery and rejoined us together with uh, Tanya Donaldson from uh, MBE who talked about the government's uh, work on an action plan um, and a, uh, some fantastic work done from the University of Auckland uh, on research. Dr. Christina Stringer, who's a fantastic researcher on, on uh, uh, modern slavery issues in, in fishing industry, in agriculture, migrant workers in New Zealand, etc. So uh, uh, you can go and have a look at that video and contact those organisations. Um, for legislation, uh, this campaign, as I said, from, from uh, World Vision and, and Trade Aid, trying to build support for New Zealand legislation. Um, so, so plenty of materials available there. And of course, if you're interested from an investment perspective, Mindful Money highlights the funds, KiwiSaver funds and retail investment funds that take these issues seriously and um, both uh, 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 doesn't invest in, in the worst companies uh, on issues like modern slavery, but also engages to improve standards uh, overall. So so uh, uh, do check out our website on that. Um, just to finish off with uh, with a, a few thanks, uh, particularly to, to you, Anne-Marie and, and Ed. Really, really great. Correro, thank you so much. That was really enjoyable. Um, thanks to our sponsors for this series, um, AMP, uh, Booster, Generate KiwiSaver, Harvard Asset Management, and the New Zealand Superannuation Fund. Uh, but special thank you to you as the audience. Um, please uh, join us for these future uh, seminars. We're, we're probably doing them weekly from, from now on for the next few months. So, so it's a really interesting set of issues coming up. Uh, we'd love to have you and uh, please pass the word on. See you online then. Kakiteana. <laughs>